confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com, code GLOW. Hi everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. It's one of the most recognisable buildings on Earth. The outline as iconic as the Eiffel Tower, as Big Ben, the pyramids in Egypt. It was built by a powerful ruler to mark the passing of his beloved wife. It is the Taj Mahal in Agra. As the sun changes position through the day, the light bounces off the surface of the nearby river and it plays on the white marble of the Taj Mahal. So it appears to be moving, dancing, the colours always changing. The building feels alive. It used to have something like 40 different types of precious or semi-precious stones built into the fabric of the building. It required something like 20,000 workers, a thousand elephants, some of the finest engineers and architects in the world at the time, none of whom, folks, were mutilated after its building. That's an urban myth. Materials came from as far away as Sri Lanka, Tibet, China. It was built by the Mughal emperor Shah Jahan, a man who was wrestling terrible grief. His wife, Mumtaz Mahal, had died from complications during the birth of their 14th child. He was broken with grief. She died in 1631 and immediately he started work on the monumental marble mausoleum. We're going to have a look at the Taj Mahal in this podcast. We're lucky enough to have Mehreen Chida Razvi on the podcast. She is an art historian at the University of SOAS who specialises in the art and architecture of Mughal South Asia. But we're also going to finish up by talking about what the Taj Mahal means today and why it's been drawn into the political battles, the culture wars, in which Hindu nationalists are trying to rewrite India's history. The story of the Taj Mahal is ongoing. Enjoy. Marine, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Tell me about this eruption of Mughal power into the Indian subcontinent. Where are they from and when did they arrive? So the Mughals are of Timurid origin. So the founder of the Mughal dynasty, Babur, is born in Fergana, the Valley of Fergana, which is primarily in today's Uzbekistan, but also going into Turkmenistan. He becomes the leader of his tribe when he's, um, I believe he's about 12 years old. 
And basically, he's one of many Timurid princelings in the region in Central Asia, wanting to establish an empire for himself. And so he comes out of the Fergana Valley with his followers. He tries to capture Samarkand, which is the great uh, capital city of Timur, with the intention of trying to uh, reestablish the great Timurid Empire. But he's not militarily strong enough to do this. And he tries several times. You mentioned reestablished the empire. Is this an empire that harks back? Is he a descendant of Genghis Khan? Is this still part of this extraordinary phenomenon of this mighty Mongol empire that stretched right across this area? He is a descendant of Genghis Khan. On his mother's side, he is descendant from uh, Genghis Khan. And on his father's side, from Timur. We don't consider the Mughals to be Mongol, however. We, we consider them to be Timurid, and they consider themselves to be Timurid. So the Timurid Empire was a successor Mongol dynasty in Central Asia. Timur had married into the Chinggisid line. And so there is this bloodline in Babur coming from Genghis Khan, coming from Timur. So he is of Mongol descent, but it's kind of interspersed by the time we're talking about, which is in the 15th century. And so there's blood in his veins, but presumably the example of the Mongol Empire, this idea of kind of universal empire, means that if you're a princeling from this part of the world, your horizon is very broad, right? You know what's possible because you're, the stories being told are about empires that stretch, well, from the Pacific to Europe. Definitely. But again, I just want to stress that it was more toward the Timurid background that uh, Babur was looking, that the Mughal line, his successors then looked as well. And the Timurid Empire was also a great empire, centered in Samarkand and then Herat, controlling most of Central Asia into Afghanistan, into uh, parts of Iran as well. And so it was a very wide geographic space, not as wide as the empire you know, established by Genghis Khan, but still of great importance. And more importantly for Babur and his descendants, it was a great cultural center and a great courtly center, which is not what the Mongols were. The Mongols were nomadic. They did not have settled you know, cities per se, other than Korokoram. So it was a different type of heritage coming from the Timurid line that Babur and his descendants really looked back to. So they want to make the Timurid Empire great again. And does he succeed in doing that? <laughs> Ultimately, he does, yes. At first, he's not very successful um, trying to capture Samarkand. He tries three times and he is unable to. Ultimately, he goes a bit further south, establishes himself in Kabul, in the city, but then the province is what becomes his power base and his seat of authority. And from Kabul, he then looks east into Hindustan. And he's actually following Timur in this because Timur in 1398 had invaded into uh, Hindustan. He sacked Delhi. And so Babur has this in his mind that this is a kind of game plan for him to follow again. And at first, he's actually invited into the region to make a bit of trouble and a bit of mayhem. At this time, um, we're now into the early 1520s. At this time, um, the northern area of what we refer to as Al-Hind in this time, was ruled by the Delhi Sultanate. And the Sultan at the time, Ibrahim Lodi, was not beloved by some of his followers, including the governor of the province of Lahore. And so that governor invited Babur and his army into the region to make a bit of turmoil to disrupt the Lodi power. And Babur first does this in 1524. 
And then he comes back again in 1526. It's a tale as old as the hills. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> Absolutely. Brilliant. Well, so he arrives as a raider, kind of opportunist, and not for the last time in history, he figures, hang on, hang on, there's opportunities for long-term conquest here. Absolutely. So when he comes in in 1524, he causes his, his mayhem. He goes back to Kabul, although he leaves a garrison in Lahore. When he's asked to come back again in 1526, this is when he comes in. He actually engages the Delhi Sultan and his army in battle at the Battle of Panipat, which is just north of Delhi. And after he defeats the Lodi Sultan and his army, and he was vastly outnumbered, instead of going back to Kabul, as was expected by others, he stays and he claims the lands of the Delhi Sultan for himself. And so this is when we have the um, establishment of what becomes the Mughal Empire in 1526. Let's come on to Shah Jahan. He's on the throne. And is he a builder? I mean, why build in this period? Is it, are they prestige projects? Is it a religious thing? What's going on with that? It is a combination of different factors. So um, just to say, Shah Jahan's father, Jahangir, died of natural causes. And then Shah Jahan came to the throne. It was Shah Jahan's son, Aurangzeb, who removed him from the throne. But in terms of the artistic production of the Mughal courts, in terms of the material culture, and including architecture, there is an incredible symbolic importance to the patronage of the arts. Um, and this has always been the case across not just Muslim kingdoms, but any royal entity strives to leave a legacy. And that includes a cultural legacy. It includes an artistic legacy. And the Mughals were no different from that point of view, but they were exceptionally good at it. And in terms of the buildings that they produced, we have layers of political symbolism where you are projecting not only your own political authority as the ruler, but the importance of your dynasty, the historical record of your line. You then have layers of religious symbolism as well, bearing in mind that the Mughals are a Muslim dynasty ruling over a non-Muslim population. You're projecting the might of Islam as well in these regions. And then just the incredible cultural flourishing, which is happening as well. So the focus to build was something which all the emperors engaged in. And Shah Jahan was particularly good at it. Even as a prince, he was given uh, the charge of commissions that his father wanted constructed. So Jahangir is the one who ordered the construction of the famous Shalimar Gardens in uh, Srinagar in Kashmir. But it was Shah Jahan, who as a prince was put in charge of that project. And he did lots of other architectural commissions as a prince as well. So he was very engaged, very interested, and very good at it. And then once he becomes the emperor with the entire imperial treasury behind him, the scale of what he does is just magnificent. Speaking of becoming engaged as a prince, tell me about his relationship with his wife. He had several wives, but uh, the wife um, I will assume you're referring to is Mumtaz Mahal. Shah Jahan and Mumtaz Mahal, so not to confuse the issue, Mumtaz Mahal's, the title she was given, her name was Arjaman Bono Begum, and her and Prince Khusro, who then gets titled Shah Jahan, they are engaged when they are 
young. They're born in the same year, but he's, I think, five or six months older. So they are 15 and 14 or 15 and 16 when, when they're engaged. And then they get married six years later. Yeah, they're 19 and 20, I think, when they get married. And there was between them a real solid relationship, a real deep love. Once Shah Jahan and Arjuman Banu Begum, now Mumtaz Mahal, married, he had his other wives. And I think he was married once more after. But he basically neglected the rest of his wives for her. They had a, a, come back to this word, deep and true relationship. She traveled everywhere with him, even on his military campaigns. The children that they had together, I mean, it was just their children, the ones who um, survived to adulthood, who were Shah Jahan's then, you know, potential heirs and, and the princesses. They had 14 children together, seven survived to adulthood. And it's while giving birth to their 14th child in 1631 that Mumtaz Mahal passes away. But we know that they had an incredibly true relationship because when we think of how these kind of marriages come about, primarily, you know, they're political and yes, you'll have affection, which then comes into the marriages. But from one of Shah Jahan's own court historians, we're given a passage, and I'm just going to read it out to you, if you don't mind, from his historian, Tazvini. And I'm taking this quote from the translation, which is in Abel Kalk's, um seminal book on the Taj Mahal. In terms of the relationship between Shah Jahan and Mumtaz Mahal, uh, Tazvini, uh, the official court historian, writes that the intimacy, deep affection, attention, and favor which His Majesty had for the cradle of excellence, which was another title of Mumtaz Mahal, this exceeded by a thousand times what he felt for any other. And always that lady of the age was the companion, close confidant, associate, and intimate friend of that successful ruler in hardship and comfort, joy and grief when traveling or in residence. The mutual affection and harmony between the two had reached a degree never seen between a husband and wife among the classes of rulers or among the other people. And this was not merely out of sexual passion. The excellent qualities, pleasing habits, outward and inward virtues, and physical and spiritual compatibility on both sides caused great love and affection and extreme affinity and familiarity. Now, Dan, I really want to stress how rare it is to have a passage like it. that written <laughs> in any of these court histories. <laughs> um, to have something like this written in an official court history, speaking not only about the intense relationship, but bringing in that little mention of the physical aspects as well of the relationship and how compatible they were in every single way. This is really rare. And in Shah Jahan's court histories, he approved everything that ended up being written in them. So this is something he was very happy to have included in the court history. Oh, so, so he was obviously, when she did die as a result of complications of that final pregnancy, childbirth, he was absolutely devastated. He was. He was. And again, we know this from his court histories. He went into deep mourning. Um, he retired from public life for at least a week. And again, this speaks to the extreme level of his emotions, because 
part of the daily ritual activities of the Mughal emperor was to physically be present in audiences, to show oneself to not only the court, but to a wider public um, at two specific viewings a day. And for him to retreat for a week and not engage in any of these activities was completely out of the ordinary. But we're told that he did that. He then wore white, which is the color of mourning. The tears that he shed over the next weeks and months led him to then need uh, spectacles. After a period of time, his beard turned completely white from grief as well. So he was deeply, deeply affected by her death. And shortly after she passed away, he began the planning of the great funerary monument to her, um, which is, of course, the Taj Mahal. You listen to Dan Snow's history here. Talk about the Taj Mahal. More coming up. How did Hitler's sexuality shape his worldview? Why did the Black Death lead to the rise of the witch trials? And what are some of the sauciest scandals involving kings and queens at Hampton Court? I don't know about you, but this is the history I want to hear about. If you do too, then join me, Kate Lister, every Tuesday and Friday to find out the answers to all of these questions and more. Listen to Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you use a messaging app, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage. Add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. And tell me, people will recognise the Taj Mahal, but what is its purpose and how is that reflected in its design? I mean, its purpose at, at the most basic level is obviously constructed as a commemorative monument to Mumtaz Mahal. But equally, and, and this is one of the things which um, I always stress because it gets passed over in the kind of common 
discussions about the Taj Mahal because it always gets put out there as this quintessential symbol of love and a monument that's built to love. And this is true. You know, as I've said, he was, or Shah Jahan was deeply affected by Mumtaz Mahal's death. But this was a monument equally built to glorify him as the ruler of the Mughal Empire. And it was a monument built to express the perfection of his rule, the perfection of his dynasty. It's one of four monumental imperial Mughal tombs. So there is a tradition of large-scale tomb architecture before it in the Mughal tradition. So the first monumental imperial tomb is Humayun's. Then um, we have Akbar's tomb in Sikandra, Jahangir's tomb in Lahore. And then we have the construction of the Taj Mahal, which is not built as an imperial tomb. It's built as a royal tomb and it's built for a queen. So it's part of this tradition of built structures, but you can see in Humayun's tomb in Delhi, a forerunner of the Taj Mahal in terms of its plan, in terms of its um, design of the building itself. And the Taj Mahal, we can see as the kind of epitome of Shah Jahani classic Mughal architecture. It is a point um, where we can say the zenith of Mughal architecture has been reached. It's a perfection of what had come before it. It is a expression of Shah Jahan's political power. And as I said, of the perfection of his rule, while at the same time, very much commemorating the wife that he deeply, deeply loved. It sounds like he wanted to give her a as close as he could possibly give her to a full imperial tomb without being too transgressive, I suppose. Who was supposed to go in it, around it? Who's it for? So these grand mausoleums effectively, um, they are places of visitation. The emperor's tombs take on shrine-like qualities. Um, that was not the case with the Taj Mahal until Shah Jahan gets buried there, but we'll come to that. But... These tombs were all constructed to have an area which had more public access and an area which was more private access. The immediate family would be able to go and visit. The, the members of the royal courts would be able to go and visit. But the way that the Taj complex is constructed, there's a forecourt area into the tomb. You then go into the tomb garden at the end of which is the Taj Mahal. What you don't see today is that immediately on the other side of the forecourt area, there was an area called the Taj Ganj, which was both a caravanserai and a bazaar complex, which was built as a part of the original Taj Mahal complex. And so this was an area that was completely open to the wider public because a bazaar space, a sarai space, and the caravanserais you can think of as travelers' lodges. So there was a lot of societal visitation and interaction at the complex. Now, not everybody from the wider public would have been able to go into the mausoleum, but they could have been in the space. And so in that way, are paying homage to the queen as well. And you mentioned that he's buried there. Was it always designed as a place where he would be laid to rest beside his queen? No, no, not at all. So um, this mausoleum built as a royal tomb for the queen 
becomes an imperial mausoleum once Shah Jahan is then buried there. So we know what an incredible architectural patron he was. And had he not been deposed by his son and imprisoned in Agra Fort, it's entirely possible he would have began planning his own mausoleum. But we we don't know because there's nothing in the historical record to say that. But what does happen is that when he dies in 1666, his body is taken the night of his death. It's moved by river to the Taj Mahal and buried there immediately. And this was not the intention when the structure was built. And the design of the building, the symmetry of the building, this tells us that. Mumtaz Mahal, her sarcophagus in the crypt and her commemorative cenotaph, which is what you see when you go to the Taj Mahal today, they are in the very central axis. That is their placement in the building. They're placed in the most important part of the building, immediately in the center. And if you look at the tiled paving around her mausoleum, there is a, a border that has been created around her cenotaph. When Shah Jahan is later buried there, he's off center and his sarcophagus and his cenotaph then are covering parts of the paving design, which is framing Mumtaz Mahal's. These are all clues to the fact that this was only ever built to be her burial site. And his inclusion is a later decision. And he's given more prominence in certain ways, but that placement in the center, had he ever intended for himself to be buried there, would have been reserved for him. It's now one of the most famous buildings in the world. It's the subject of several myths. That, should we dispatch the myth that he had the architect killed or maimed or blinded or, or whatever so that he could never create anything as beautiful? Yes, please, let's do so. <laughs> um, that was not the case. That never happened. You have all sorts of like these stories of oriental despots doing this kind of thing um, coming out of Europe. And no, this was not the case. We know the names of the individuals who were responsible for the architecture and construction of the Taj Mahal, we know that they are continuing to build for Shah Jahan once the Taj Mahal is complete. And it would have been the heights of folly to get rid of these masters who are creating these structures, which as the patron, you are building with the intention of creating a legacy. So no, never happened. <laughs> Please stop talking about that. Uh, Shah Jahan himself his son, I keep being very mean about uh, Mughals, but on this occasion, it is true, right, that his son did imprison him and he had a very sad end of life. Yes, unfortunately. Um, so Shah Jahan got very ill and his sons began to place themselves um, for what was going to follow. Now, Shah Jahan had declared his eldest son, Dara Shikoh, as his heir. But this was not to the liking of the other brothers, especially um, Aurangzeb. And when Shah Jahan became ill under the premise of protecting his father, Aurangzeb imprisoned him in the fort in Agra. And then despite the fact that he gets better, the war between the brothers for the succession has already started. And it is full of backstabbing and it's very bloody. But the end result is that Aurangzeb is the winner. He made alliances with his two other brothers, Murad Baksh and Shah Shuja, against Dara Shikoh, and then turned on them. 
Dara Shako is the first one to be killed, and then Murad Baksh and uh, Shah Shuja are also killed, and Aurangzeb proclaims himself the new emperor. But it does mean his dad was able to look across the river imprisoned in that fort and look at the Taj Mahal in his final days. Indeed, yeah, for the final six years of his life, he's imprisoned in the Agra fort with his um, eldest daughter, Jahanara, who after Mumtaz Mahal's death basically took on the role of queen in the empire. And yes, um, it's quite poignant. Uh, You can go to the fort in Agra and you can go to the the site where he was imprisoned. And yeah, the river is curving around and just down you see the Taj Mahal in the distance. What does the Taj Mahal mean today in a world of tourism, in a world of heritage tourism and Instagram and photographs, but also in a world of a Hindu nationalist regime in India that's got very... Um, well, maybe not very nuanced thoughts about, but quite straightforward thoughts about um, the Muslim <laughs> uh, moguls. What does the Taj Mahal mean today? It's a really important question, Dan, and it's become a very complicated question. In terms of tourism, obviously, it's one of the most visited um, sites in India. It is famous on a global level. It is promoted within India and obviously globally as a tourist site in order to bring in people. And so they put money into maintaining the Taj, maintaining the complex for tourist purposes. It used to be the case that you would find it on any travel brochure, tourist brochure, but I believe they're now not using the visual image of the Taj so much on the official government material. But, you know, as you say, we live in this world of social media and the Taj is constantly photographed and put out there in the wider sphere. Um, so it's very much a part of the visual record of, of India. It's identified with India. Now, the complicated part of it comes into play when we think about what the current Indian government is doing in relation to the monument itself, but also to the wider Mughal Muslim past of India. There are court cases brought by members of the government which are trying to get the Taj Mahal declared a Hindu temple. In 1989, there was this uh, individual, P.N. Oak, who wrote a book called Taj Mahal, The True Story, in which he stated that it was actually originally a Hindu temple built in the 12th century, dedicated to Lord Shiva, and That's obviously nonsense. But he wrote this. He established an institute um, for rewriting Indian history. So the Taj wasn't the only building he attacked, but it was certainly the most famous. And that writing of his has been taken up and used by others of the same persuasion to push forth this myth that the Taj Mahal was not Mughal, that it was originally Hindu, that it was taken over. And some of these court cases, which are going through, the system in India now are, again, making the same claim, saying that there are Hindu sculptures and idols in the chambers beneath the Taj Mahal, and they will prove that this was first and foremost a Hindu temple. This is all part of a wider program to, I mean, at its most basic essence, to rewrite the history of India with a very strong Hindutva ideology slant. And it's extremely problematic. 
And the Taj Mahal is probably the most visual symbol of this and the most famous symbol of this. But textbooks are being rewritten to remove parts of the, the history relating to the Muslims, relating to the Mughals. You see it across many different avenues in society at the moment. And it's really important, I think, for people to recognize that there is no proof for any of this. I used the word nonsense before. We have the historical record and the historical sources telling us that this was a structure built by the Mughals and not just Muslim sources, but Rajasthani sources as well, because the land was bought from one of the Rajasthani rulers. And in their archives, we have the information about that land sale, but it's information which is ignored in order to put forth this story that the current government is trying to tell. That is wild. What a world. Okay, well, thank you very much for coming on talking about the past, the present and the future of the Taj Mahal. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.